Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to begin by asking you, um, do you remember when you first learned to swim? Anybody remember that? Well, when I was young, my parents wanted me to be safe around the water, so they sent me out for swim lessons because I had no problem in the kiddie pool. I mean, the kiddie pool was good, but when it came to the deep end, that was really scary. I didn't want anything to do with that. I didn't grow up where there were lakes where it could be actually very deep and you wouldn't know it because it was murky. I grew up in the city, and so they had a pool, and the water was clear. And as a little child, looking into the deep end and seeing those painted lines all the way on the bottom, well, let's just say I was petrified until I learned to swim. But even when I was a kid, before I knew how to swim, there was one way that I would swim in the deep end, and that was with an adult with me. You see, if an adult was there, somebody who was much bigger, much stronger, much more powerful than me, then I felt safe in the deep end. Did anybody else ever go through that same experience? Being afraid of the deep end, but yet feeling safe when you're with an adult in the deep end? Well, you know what that experience is like. Then you'll be able to completely connect with our text that we are going to study this morning. So I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses. Once you find those verses, please stand. We stand here, by the way, out of honor of God's Word when we read it together. Beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with, a Moses, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that First, Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, 
and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. That ends the reading of the word of God, and you may be seated. This is the story of the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is also talked about in Matthew. It's also talked about in, in Luke. And we're going to look at Matthew and Luke as we study this transfiguration in Mark. But if we're going to understand the point of the transfiguration and why Jesus did the transfiguration and why Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration, we really need to understand the context of what was going on here. Remember that uh, we got to the middle point of the book and Peter, he had the bright flash of light in his head and the Holy Spirit revealed to him the true identity of Jesus. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus is like, good, Peter, you got it. And then immediately, Jesus changed the topic of conversation and brought it in a way that Peter didn't want it to go. I am the Christ, Peter, but I'm going to suffer, be rejected by the Jewish leaders. I'm going to die and rise on the third day. Peter wanted nothing to do with that. And in fact, he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. And then Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter. Uh, Yes, Peter, I I am going to die. And then we got to the passage that we studied last week, which was a very short and very potent sermon by Jesus that he gave not just to the disciples, but to the crowds around him. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, and if anyone wants to be my disciple, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In other words, the path that God the Father has chosen for me is that I would suffer, be rejected, and die. If you're going to follow me, guess what? You're going to also experience difficulties. Life will not be easy. You will end up losing your life for me as well. That's scary. That's an incredibly difficult challenge. It's scarier than diving into the deep end of the pool. It really is. But if you knew that when you went into the deep end of the pool, you had somebody with you, somebody much more powerful, much greater than you, who would keep you safe in that scary moment where you're living your life for Jesus and maybe even losing your life for Jesus. Wouldn't that change things? Well, this morning, we're going to meet that person who's in the deep end of the pool with us when we're living our life for Jesus and maybe even losing our life for Jesus. And we're going to see his incredible power and might. So, taking out your outlines, we're going to start on the first point with what is rather an odd verse here, but we'll explain it to you. Jesus promised to strengthen the faith of some, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You need to realize this is considered by some to be one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament. Other people have tried to use this verse to prove that the New Testament is actually is wrong because he says, Jesus says here, some who are standing here will not taste death. 
that's another way of saying will not die until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, in the previous verse, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God coming with power when Jesus returns in power and glory and might at the end of history. In fact, I put that verse in your notes for you. Let's just read the underlined section. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is referring to Jesus' return at the end of history. But in the verse that we just started studying, verse 1 of chapter 9, it appears that some people will not die until they see Jesus' kingdom come with glory and power. But here's the problem. All the people who are there are dead. And Jesus has still not returned. So people say this verse proves the Bible is wrong. Or is there actually a much better answer? A much more obvious answer that is sitting right under our nose. Maybe verse 1 doesn't refer to Jesus' return at the end of history going backwards. Maybe it refers to the power and glory of Jesus Christ going forwards in the next verses that we just studied. That is the transfiguration. Because isn't it true that Jesus takes some, Peter, James, and John, and brings them up a mountain where they see Jesus in his glory and might and power? Which is exactly what he just said. Some here will not die until they see my glory, might, and power. And that's exactly what happened. But then you wonder, what's the connection between Jesus at the end of history and Jesus in the transfiguration. And here's what the connection is. The transfiguration in the middle of history is a preview of Jesus' glory, might, and power, which will be fully revealed at the end of history when Jesus returns in glory, might, and power. Think of the transfiguration that we just read and that we're going to study as a mini-movie preview. You know, you, get on, you look at the preview of the movie and then decide if you're going to watch the whole thing. The transfiguration in the middle of history is a preview of what Jesus' glory, might, and power will be like when he returns at the end of history. Now, why do I say that? And is there any other biblical evidence to prove that? There actually is. You can go to 2 Peter chapter 1, 16-18. Peter, of course, who was one of the men who was in the transfiguration, says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That is that the transfiguration was a preview of his power and of his 
coming. And if you continue in 1 Peter and get to chapter 3, Peter starts talking about all those people who say that Jesus will not return again. He says, no, he will. I saw it the first time in the transfiguration. He will come again in a second time at the end of history. But why did the transfiguration take place? Why did God the Father and Jesus do this? Was this transfiguration merely for Peter's entertainment value? Sort of like watching a Marvel comic movie with all kinds of flashes and light? No. Remember Jesus had said that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer, be rejected, and die. And if you're going to be my disciple, you too must deny yourself, take up their cross, and follow me. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus if you saw the Jesus that was in the transfiguration? If you saw Jesus with all of his might, all of his glory, and all of his power? Wouldn't it be a little easier then to dump, jump into the deep end of the pool if you knew that the Jesus of the transfiguration was with you? Exactly. That's the purpose of the transfiguration. To actually build the faith of Peter, James, and John. And know that they can actually follow him, even though it may cost them everything. Now let's study the transfiguration itself. This is going to be fun. Jesus strengthened the faith of Peter, James, and John by the transfiguration. Jesus revealed his glory and power in the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, there's an interesting thing we'll start with right here at the beginning. Mark says that it was after six days that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and left to go up this mountain. What's interesting is if you study the Gospel of Mark, almost never in this Gospel does Peter or does Mark make any time references. I think the only other time reference I found is talking about Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. No other time references. So there must be an important reason why Mark mentions six days here. Now, there is an important reason. In fact, if you came from a Jewish background, you might begin to connect this right away. And that is that there is a parallel between Mount Sinai in the Old Testament and the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament. Now, I was going to put these notes I'm going to share with you in your outlines, but your outline only has so much space, so I couldn't put it in there. But you will need this information if you're doing the life group questions on the back of your outline. So let me just show you how the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount Sinai are similar, and then I'll show you how they're different. And you see they're designed to be connected together. Number one, Jesus and the disciples went to hear from God after six days. Moses heard from God on Mount Sinai also after six days. 
Exodus 24, 15 through 16. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountains. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The next parallel is this. Jesus went up the mountain with three disciples. Moses went up the mountain with three priests. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and worship from afar. There's another parallel. Another one is this. Jesus radiated the glory of God on the mountain. Moses experienced the glory of God on Mount Sinai. It says here in Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. But here's a little bit of a difference. Jesus radiates God's glory, as we're going to study more of. But Moses, when he was up there, he sort of absorbed God's glory like a big glow-in-the-dark sticker. He didn't have it innately in himself. He absorbed it, had it for a while, and it dissipated. Another parallel. God the Father appeared in a cloud and spoke from a cloud at both Mount Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration. Exodus 24, 16. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out from the midst of the cloud. That's how the Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount Sinai are similar. But you know how they're different? Here's where it's cool. On Mount Sinai, God gave us his law that we couldn't keep, which led to death. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, God gave us his son who kept the law for us that led to our life. You see how they're similar, but actually the Mount of Transfiguration is better. It's different. Now, where did this all take place? The uh, Transfiguration, you need to know, most likely took place on something called Mount Hermon. If you go to the Holy Lands and you travel around there, many of the tour guides will tell you, at least I am told, that the Transfiguration took place on some, a mountain called Mount Tabor. Most theologians disagree with that for a couple reasons. Number one, Mount Tabor is not that high. Number two, at the time this took place, there was actually people living on top of the mountain, which would not be a place to go to get away with your disciples. And, and number three, it's actually a long distance away from Caesarea Philippi, which, where, which is where they were located, where Mount Hermon was right there. But let me show you what Mount Hermon looks like. Go ahead and put that up. That's Mount Hermon in the background. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet high. This is a picture taken in the summer. It has snow on it in the summer. It is that high. I tried to sort of get my mind wrapped around what it would be like to climb a 9,000 foot mountain. And I went back into some of my younger days. Uh, some of you don't know, but I used to climb mountains a lot. I was a hiker and I did that when I was a teenager. I climbed the, some of the mountains in Adirondacks of New York. I climbed 23 mountains in, the, in New York. I climbed Mount Marcy, which is the highest mountain in New York, which is about 5,377 feet. And so I could just connect in my mind. What was it like to climb Mount Marcy? It was a full-day hike. 
but you go sort of slow because, you know, the air gets thin when you get towards the top. You can't breathe that well. And then you notice the trees start getting shorter. And there's this thing called the tree line. You guys ever seen that on top of a mountain, the tree line? He saw it. Yeah, exactly. But the point is the air is so thin that the, 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 the trees don't grow there. And I thought about this. You hit the tree line somewhere below 5,377 feet on Mount Marcy. Mount Hermon is another 3,000 plus feet higher. Well, it gets interesting because what happens at this point is um, if you think about this, it took Jesus and these three disciples a long time to get to the top of this mountain, which sort of explains what some people point out as discrepancies in the texts. If you look at Matthew and Mark, they will say that after six days, after Jesus gave that tough sermon, they left to climb this mountain. If you look at Luke, Luke says the transfiguration took place eight days after the tough sermon. Two-day difference. You know why? Because it took them two days to climb the mountain. This is called Sherpa Jesus. Honestly, it is way up there. You are looking down from the clouds, not looking at the clouds. Jesus and his disciples get to the top, and this is what happened. Jesus reveals his glory. Um, the text in front of us says that Jesus was transfigured. That's the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. And it's sort of like the Avengers. You guys seen the Avenger movies where the guy looks normal, and then they go through the metamorphosis, and they change and look different? This is what Jesus goes through, but like unto a much, much greater level. First, let me just uh, look at his clothing, how his clothing changed. Mark says his clothing became white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. So Clorox has got nothing on Jesus' clothing at this point. They are very white, intensely white. But here's where it's helpful to go to the other Gospels. Luke says this, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Very interesting word, dazzling white. It means to become white like lightning and to flash like lightning. So have you ever seen you know, outside of your window at night when the lightning is flashing and pounding and it's lighting everything up around you in complete and pure white? That is Jesus' clothing in this moment. We haven't even gotten to his person in this moment. He is flashing with his clothing. You go to Matthew and it says this, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Can you look at the sun in the middle of the day? Absolutely not. That is what Jesus' face looks like at this moment. It is majorly impressive. You think your Avenger superhero was incredibly cool when he was metamorphized? Nothing compared to Jesus. 
But what's even more impressive is what Peter, James, and John were doing prior to this happening. Boy, are they ordinary just like you and me. Luke chapter 9 tells us, Now Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep when they became fully awake and they saw his glory. We just saw in the previous verse that Jesus took him to the top of the mountain for a prayer meeting. And so Jesus says, guys, let's pray. And Jesus is praying. And Peter, James, and John start sleeping instead of praying. Like sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane is not new for them. These guys always sleep in the prayer meeting. And as they're opening their eyes, they see that Jesus has been metamorphosized right in front of them. His face shining bright as the sun, his clothing completely white and flashing like lightning. Now, what is happening? What is happening is that on earth, Jesus up to this point has been veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. His glory and might and power has been veiled in flesh. But for a brief period of time, God the Father has pulled back the veil of his flesh so you can see exactly what Jesus is like in his glory, in his might, and in his power. We talked about this earlier. Jesus said, I'm going to go suffer, be rejected, and die. And if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I know that's scary. Scary in the deep end of pool of the pool, but I am with you. And now they know who is really with them. Jesus in his glory, might, and power. Now on the mountain, Jesus met Moses and Elijah. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us how that they realized it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they asked them their name. I don't know. Maybe they were wearing their church name tags. Could have been. Maybe Peter, James, and John had been stalking Moses and Elijah's Facebook page. I don't know how they knew the identity of Moses and Elijah, but I do know this from Scripture. Peter, James, and John realized what they were talking about with Jesus because they heard what they were talking about. And this is fascinating. In verses 30 and 31, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Remember, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. But here's the interesting part. The Greek word for departure is the Greek word for exodus. Moses did an exodus of God's people from Egypt to slave them from slavery and earthly death. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to accomplish a second and much greater exodus of God's people. Slavery to sin and eternal death and separation from God. 
That is the exodus that he is about ready to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now let's look at Moses and Elijah a little bit. I want to give you two passages out of Luke that talks about them. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, it says. So they have some glory to them. Luke chapter 9, 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, focusing on Jesus, and the two men who stood with him. We already have a picture of what Jesus looks like in glory. His face is shining like the sun. His clothing is flashing and bright as lightning. Moses and Elijah have glory, but I personally don't think it's anything like Jesus's. I really don't. I think it's a situation that is very similar to what happened to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. He didn't innately possess glory, but he had absorbed some of God's glory, and then from that he reflected and emitted some of God's glory. So Jesus and his glory is unique and stands out way above the others. Now Peter makes a big mistake. If you notice, Peter makes a lot of them. First of all, he rebuked Jesus just a little bit ago, back in chapter 8, which you don't rebuke the guy you just recognized as the Christ. Of course, when it comes to Jesus going to the cross, he denies Jesus three times. Here's another big time where he should have just kept his mouth shut, but he didn't. And Peter said to him, to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Jesus, I'll put up three shelters for you guys so you can stay here. Why would he say this? What he's trying to do is keep them there. He's trying to hold on to that moment where he sees Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in glory. Because if you look at the other gospel writers, they tell us exactly when Peter came up with this idea and he came up with these words. Look what it says in Luke. And as the men were parting from him, that's when Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. He is thrilled about this moment, seeing Jesus and then Moses and Elijah in glory. Earlier, remember, Peter was the one who kept saying, is now the time for the kingdom to come with glory, with might and power, and with overthrow the Romans? And now Peter sees all this glory and might and power. This is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. But Moses and Elijah are starting to fade. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Don't leave. I'll make a place for you to stay. He's holding on to this. And that's where it goes exactly wrong. Let's see what happens. On the mountain, God the Father rebuked Peter. 
Chapter, verse 7 of Mark 9 says, And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. By the way, what cloud is this? It's not just any cloud. It's not just an ordinary cloud. This is the cloud you've seen in the Old Testament. Remember the cloud that led God's people out of Egypt in the wilderness? Remember the, uh, the cloud that filled Solomon's temple when it was dedicated? Remember the cloud that covered Mount Sinai when Moses went up there? The cloud of God the Father's glory. This is the same cloud of God's presence that shows up. And when does this cloud show up? We actually learn in Matthew. It's right as Peter is making these proposals to set up these tents, to hold on to this moment, to keep this glory, might, and power that he's been trying to lean into for some time. It says this, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, what happened is God the Father interrupted Peter mid-sentence. Stop talking, buddy. Start listening. In fact, it comes out with even more emphasis in Luke. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's put in the emphatic tense. You notice the exclamation mark? Stop talking, Peter, and start listening. You've got the identity of my son wrong. You think you can coach him to not going to Jerusalem, to not suffering and dying. He's going there to perform a great exodus of people from their sins and death. Stop talking him out of that. Start listening. Now, imagine if you were Peter. You've already been rebuked by Jesus earlier. Now you just got rebuked by God the Father. If I was Peter, I'd hit the deck. And I'd actually be quiet at this point. And I'd stop talking. And I'd start listening. And that's exactly what he does. In verse seven, or Matthew 17, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, which is an appropriate response. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's one crazy prayer meeting. Usually prayer meetings can be a little boring. We've already seen that these guys typically sleep through prayer meetings, but this prayer meeting was pretty exciting when Jesus was transfigured in glory. And then they head down the mountain. Jesus told Peter, James, and John not to speak of the transfiguration until he rose from the dead. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Incidentally, in this gospel, many times when Jesus tells people to keep quiet about a miracle or keep quiet about something, they don't listen. And they oftentimes blurt it out and talk. But this time, the disciples listened. They listened well. I think it's 
quite simply because they were terrified. They had just seen Jesus in all of his glory, might, and power. God the Father had just told Peter, stop talking to him and start listening to him. And Peter's like, yes, sir. Jesus says, don't talk about this. I will not talk about this. But at that point, there was a change in tone for Peter, James, and John. They understood who they were dealing with with Jesus. And they were much better at listening to Jesus, which sort of brings us to our second point. Because while God the Father really strengthened their faith through difficult times by the transfiguration, the next thing we find is Jesus strengthened the faith of the disciples by now answering their tough Bible questions. Because if Jesus is this one in the transfiguration, the very Son of God, He can answer our tough Bible questions. So they asked Him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. In other words, they were referring to this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. They're like, hey, the prophet said Elijah would come before the Christ came. You're the Christ, so where was Elijah? And Jesus says to him, okay, you want a tough Bible question for me? I have a tough Bible question for you. You think I shouldn't suffer? You think I shouldn't die as the Christ? How about this? How, it is, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's also in the Old Testament Scriptures. And I put in your notes for you an example of one from Isaiah 35. And then Jesus answers them, I, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And then if you go to Matthew, I'll read the underlined section. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. But the disciples understood now that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. All of a sudden they got their tough Bible question answered. The one who was the Elijah that was to come was John the Baptist. And the scriptures do line up. Well, here's the challenge. Okay, it's going to be tough to follow Jesus. It's going to be denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Him. That's getting in the deep end of the pool. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew there was someone much greater and more powerful there with us when we go into that scary place? There is. Jesus. The Jesus of glory and might and power that we saw in the transfiguration. Wouldn't it be nice if we had been at the transfiguration? Wouldn't it be nice if we could have seen Jesus in all of his glory, all of his might and power? Man, it would certainly make uh, following him today a lot easier, wouldn't it? I've got good news for you. The Bible says that God gives us something more faith-convincing, more faith-fulfilling than even the transfiguration was for Peter, James, and John. What could strengthen our faith more than the transfiguration did for those three disciples? 
let me show you. Remember we were at in 2 Peter chapter 1 when we started where Peter talked about the fact that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when we received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. But then Peter continues. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The transfiguration built the faith of Peter, James, and John. <clears throat> Peter says, we have something better than the transfiguration. We have the prophetic word, which is more fully confirmed. The word of God that you and I hold in our hand, according to the Apostle Peter, builds our faith and can strengthen our faith more than the transfiguration did for Peter, James, and John in that moment. This is why Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to this word as a lamp shining in a dark place. Folks, we're going to go through tough times as Christians. Tough times where we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus, because that's what it means to be his disciple. Times where we wish that we had been there at the transfiguration, where we could have seen and known Jesus in all of his glory, might, and power, but we have something, Peter says, that's better than the transfiguration itself. The very Word of God, which helps us see Jesus better, know Jesus more, and love Jesus more deeply than even the transfiguration ever could. So folks, I commend to you the Word of God you hold in your hand which can open your eyes to Jesus more clearly than the transfiguration itself. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, we thank you for the very word you have given. Your Bible tells us that your word is living, that it's active, that it's sharper than a very two-edged sword, that it pierces our very hearts. Your word also tells us that uh, the Word of God creates life. The Word of God sustains spiritual life. We need your Word more than we need our daily bread to sustain our spiritual life. But as we put our finger in the text, as we memorize Scripture as a church every week, as we study your Word on our own, I thank you that, Holy Spirit, you will take your Word 
and use it to make Jesus come alive in glory, might, and power to each one of us. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.